Chapter 11, Part 2 of Shores of the Polar Sea, a narrative of the Arctic expedition of 1875-76. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss. Chapter 11, Part 2. Both ships were now free to voyage southward as soon as the ice would let them leave Discovery Harbor. Ballot Island formed a sort of natural breakwater and kept the flows outside, so that the bay, all round the ships, was often almost clear of ice. But beyond the island, the pack showed little disposition to let us through. In Lady Franklin Strait, promising-looking lines of water wound amongst the flows in many directions, but they were only shaped cracks thawed wide at the surface, and mere fissures six or eight feet under water. Looked down on from the cliffs of the island, they marbled the white flows with veins of green, very different from the inky blackness of real leads. But that the rapid approach of winter made escape less likely every day, we were well content to wait our opportunity, for there were many places in the neighborhood of the Discovery's winter quarters that we, of the alert, were anxious to see. First amongst these was the coal seam discovered by her naturalist, Mr. Hart. This was only about four miles off, amongst the hills to the north, but, unfortunately, in such an inaccessible position that little more than a few pounds weight of the fuel could be brought down to the ship. Coal so far north was such a curiosity, and the fossils found near it told such a strange story that every one wanted specimens, and there was no difficulty in getting up a strong party to visit the mine. So, one morning, a large boatload of eager geologists armed with picks and hammers, crossed the mouth of the harbor. Like the breakwater of Bellet Island, the spot where we landed bore traces of a visit from Eskimo at some very far-off time. A collection of stones marked by fire, splinters of burnt driftwood, and fragments of bones broken to get the marrow out, told plainly of some wandering hunter's campfire. Half a mile further on, one of our party picked up a fragment of a human thigh-bone, brown and weather-worn, and gnawed by foxes. Strange to say, we could not find any other part of the skeleton. Striking inland, we passed through a number of valleys, with steep rocky walls and a flat floor between, like railway cuttings on a large scale, and at length reached a little stream winding eastward towards the channel. Following it down a short distance, we found it entering a gorge, with mountains a thousand feet high on either side. Soon, the only way to advance was by wading amongst the boulders in the bed of the stream, with overhanging walls of black rock on either side, so close that we could almost touch both with outspread hands. No wonder the Discovery's autumn sledge-crews had found this a rough road. 
Finally, the ravine ended in a very unexpected manner. A vast bank of snow and ice sloped across from mountain to mountain, and the stream disappeared under it and into an icy cave. We followed the stream and found ourselves in Chettle's Grotto, so-called after a blue jacket in the autumn sledge party that had pronounced it a most comfortable camping place. The roof was of white ice, streaked with veins of sand, and groined into all sorts of fantastic shapes. An opening overhead let in some rays of light through festoons of icicles as thick as a man's body. On either side, curious sloping shelves of ice projected out over the stream. It was decidedly a picturesque spot, and if the water in which we stood had not been so intensely cold, we might have taken longer time over our sketch. Here we were close to the coal seam, but the worst part of the road was yet to come. The stream passed out of the far end of the grotto through a dark tunnel, so low that we had to stoop to avoid knocking our heads against the ice of the roof, and so dark that we were obliged to feel our way along by the sides, stumbling and floundering amongst the pools and boulders. Presently, however, light shone through at the other end, and we emerged into a continuation of the gorge. A bend of the stream brought us to the spot we sought. Right and left rose two great mountain slopes, with the rivulet running between them, the lower twenty or thirty feet of the right bank was a perpendicular wall of coal streaked with yellow sulphurous lines. The surface had become brittle by exposure to the weather, but a few blows of a pick revealed a depth of shining black fuel, to all appearance as good as any we had on board. Everyone was differently impressed by the great store of mineral wealth that lay before us. "'What a pity we cannot get up a company and issue shares,' said one. "'How comfortably we might winter alongside of this,' thought another. And the third, making a free use of the scientific imagination, pictured to himself the conditions which must have existed when this coal was waving forest, and wondered how the trees managed to live through the long darkness of winter. That they did live and flourish on this spot, there was abundant proof. Mere driftwood has before now been mistaken for evidence of arctic vegetation, but here there could be no such error. It was only necessary to cross the stream a little lower down, and split open the soft, dark slates of the opposite cliff to find the leaves of ancient forests as perfect as when they fluttered down from the stems that bore them. The commonest were those of a cone-bearing tree allied to the great Wellingtonias of Western America, but leaves like aspen and poplar were not unfrequent. How different the climate must have been when these trees grew. Now, 
there is no forest within a thousand miles, and in the whole land the nearest approach to a tree is the dwarf willow, not three inches high, sheltering its tiny stem in the crevices amongst the stones. Though the discovery of this coal bed was most important in a scientific point of view, it was of no practical use to us. If any other expedition ever passes through Smith Sound, we may be sure it will not be forgotten. There it remains, an inexhaustible reservoir of force, ready for anyone who can invent a new method of travelling to the Pole. While our two ships lay waiting for a chance of escape from Discovery Bay, we began to be impressed with the fact that it was one thing to decide on the return of an expedition from a point so far north, and quite another to accomplish it without a second winter. Even yet the ships were farther north than any of their predecessors had wintered. Where many a good ship had failed, ours might not succeed. We were yet one hundred and ninety miles north of where Cain was at last compelled to abandon his ship. The Polaris, a steamer at least as well fitted for ice work as either of our ships, left her ribs and timbers more than two hundred miles to the south. British expeditions, entangled in the ice of the Perry Group, had more than latitude to contend with. But the Resolute was abandoned at 280. The Investigator, 450. And the Erebus and Terror, 700 miles to the south of our position. The strong set through Smith Sound was greatly in our favor. But nevertheless, 200 miles of ice-choked channel lay between us in the head of Baffin Sea, and beyond it, Melville Bay would still separate us from the most northern Danish settlement. Young ice was already forming where the flows were still, and a little more delay would compel us to pass an objectless, inactive winter where we were, and trust to next year for a better chance of return. No one in either of our ships had at this time a doubt of our success, but nevertheless such considerations had their weight. There was, accordingly, a general feeling of relief on board, when, on the evening of the 18th of August, the officer of the watch reported that Captain Ayres, who had, as usual, climbed to the top of the island, was holding out both his arms as a signal to get up steam in both boilers. The gate of pack to the southward showed some signs of opening, and we might get through by pushing amongst the broken ice between the floes. But the inertia of the fragments was too much for the ships, even charging at full speed, and we were forced back to the shelter of the island, with the second rudder badly damaged. End of chapter 11, part 2